The sermon text for this morning is from Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 14. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near God. Why have we fasted and you not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall cry and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourselves out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, self-deception, self-deception is very real, and it's, it's very dangerous. Now, sometimes we... We laugh about being self-deceived. <clears throat> I think I referenced a few months back about that survey done in Texas of high school students. How many felt that they were uniquely gifted to be leaders? And 90% felt that they were in the 10 percentile. Just for those of you who don't work well with numbers, that does not work. <clears throat> uh, there's other forms of self-deception, though. Uh, For example, the the idea of a Ponzi scheme. Many of you know this expression. It's an investment that promises very high returns in very quick time. 
And year after year, you read about these investment schemes that kind of draw people in and just bankrupt them. People know in their minds there is no free lunch. And yet we want to believe, we so want the fast wealth that we delude ourselves. We are self-deceived. We are doing the deceiving because we want what is offered to us. Self-deception is very real and it's very dangerous, particularly when you look at spiritual things. In, in trying to assess where we are with God, we, we assess that we are in a place often that we are not. That's what Isaiah 58 is really speaking about. He's speaking to a people, God through his prophet Isaiah is speaking to a people that are self-deceived about their positioning with God. And it's carried out in this sermon or this chapter on fasting. Now, as you know, if you haven't been with us over this past month, we as a church have been fasting uh, once a month on the second Tuesday. This is what we call a, a corporate fast. We're fasting together for common purposes, for common spiritual. Now, what is a fast? A fast is simply an abstention from food or drink or perhaps other things, even social media, for spiritual purposes. We're not fasting for greater wealth or greater health. We're not fasting for more influence. We're not fasting for an easier life. We're fasting first as just as a, as a reminder to ourselves of our, of our brokenness and our need to repent before God. We, we fast that we want more of God. We want to know God and love God more. You know, this is what we've been doing for, over this year. I think it's intuitive to know God. I don't think it's intuitive to love God. I think it's intuitive to love ourselves. And so the first month we fasted that we might delight in God, that we might look at his character and his glory and his beauty, and we might fall in greater love for him than the love we have for ourselves. Uh, the next month we fasted for uh, a love for God's word, to know his word, to be instructed by it, to be led by it, to live in light of it. We fasted for a greater treasuring of the Son, of Jesus. We, much of this world we just love. It's very attractive and distractive. But we fasted that we would have a greater love for Christ and his cross. This month coming up, we're fasting for a greater dependence upon his Spirit. Folks, we need his Spirit. You cannot know Christ apart from his Spirit. You can't sense the sonship that you have with God apart from his Spirit. We can't enjoy the unity of this church in any measure without the Spirit. We can't finish this race without the Spirit. We can't walk according to the Word apart from the Spirit. We can't understand the Scriptures apart from the Spirit. So we're fasting to remind ourselves of how dependent we are in the Spirit. So when we're fasting as a church, we're looking back at the fact that we haven't loved God as we ought and our neighbor as ourselves but we're looking forward. We want more of God. We want to find him to be satisfying. We want to find our sufficiency in him rather than the temporal blessings of this world. Not that those temporal blessings are bad. They're just insufficient for humans made in the image of God. And so when we look at Isaiah 58, I want you to see two things. <clears throat> I want you to see the exposing of self-deceptive people of God. In the first five verses, you're going to see 
God through his prophet expose and condemn a false spirituality. And then in verses 6 <clears throat> to 14, you're going to see what a true fast is, a fruitful fast. So you have a failed fast and a fruitful fast. Well, let's look at the failed fast first. This is in verses 1 to 5. Look back in verse 1 with me. N notice what he says, shout it aloud, don't hold back. This is a command of God to Isaiah. And he's a prophet, he's speaking for God, and he says, shout it out, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. Now, God obviously wants to get our attention. I mean, he, he's saying, shout it out aloud. Raise your voice. He's speaking very clearly to get their attention. To raise your voice like a trumpet. Trumpets are instruments used, particularly in this day and age, to gather troops, to alert for enemies. It was, a, it was an instrument used to get attention. God wants us to be really, really, really attentive, have our ears clear. Now, what is this rebellion that he is to declare? Well, it's a false religion. It's a hypocrisy. It's a spiritual. They're adhering to rituals and ceremonies while their hearts are far from God. Now, why do I say that? Well, look with me, because Isaiah, like an, like an attorney, kind of presents the evidence in verse 2. You see how he starts out with four. He's giving us a reason here. He says, for day after day they seek me. They seem eager to know my ways. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager to my, for my presence to come near them. That all sounds good to me. I mean, they're devoted. They're committed, right? I mean, it all looks good. They're seeking me. They're eager. They seem eager to know my ways. They seem eager for my presence. What Isaiah is doing is he's showing two things here. Their hypocrisy is marked by their attitude and their actions. First, by their attitudes. You notice how he says they seem eager. They seem eager for my presence. But notice in verse 3 how they're behaving. He says th these people who are fasting, who are self-deceived, they say, why have we fasted and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? I in other words, it seems this discouragement, this contempt, they're really holding God in the dock. They're putting God in the dock because he hasn't answered their prayers. Look, we fasted, you haven't seen it. We've humbled ourselves, you haven't noticed it. In other words, it seems as if their spirituality is kind of a calculated attempt to leverage from heaven what they need. It's this quid pro quo relationship. We're going to do this, but you've got to come with your end. You've got to fulfill your end of the bargain. They're complaining that all their spiritual stuff, it didn't work. It wasn't working, so we should be done with it. I mean, this is, a, this is a, I gave, I came to church, I fasted, I prayed, I have my devotions, and look what I, I got nothing. I got nothing. And that's revealing their contempted attitude towards God. You know what this is? This isn't a fast, it's a hunger strike. They're, they're performing a hunger strike. They're saying, I'm not going to eat until I get my demands met. That, that's what they're doing. So their attitude in going into the spiritual discipline of fasting was what's in it for me in a temporal, in a material, in a physical way. But it's more than their attitudes. Notice their actions. Because Isaiah brings these up next in verse 4. Verse, at the end of uh, verse 3 and 4. He says, even on the day of fasting, you're doing what you want. You're exploiting workers. You're having quarrels. You're strife, striking each other with wicked fists. In other words, even on the day of fasting, even on the day that they've dedicated to God, they're behaving 
as if God did not exist, as if God were blind to the goings-on of his world. They're exploiting workers. They're taking advantage of people. They're walking in strife. They're increasing in conflict. I mean, I mean even on the day of fast. You know, there is this, there's a southwest county in Michigan a couple years back in terms of a national survey of spousal abuse. It, was, it had the highest percentage of church attendance in this county. One of the highest percentages of church attendance in the whole country. And yet the very same county had one of the highest percentages of spousal abuse in the country. How do those square up? Well, they don't. There's a spiritual hypocrisy. It's like a mirage. You know, a mirage, you see that oasis, you're walking through the desert, you're delirious, you see it, you run for it, and what is it? Just a pile of sand. Or it's like that chocolate Easter bunny that you'd get from your aunt. Remember getting one, it was a huge one. I was so excited. I was in tall cotton. I was going to have chocolate for a week. And you bite the ear, what happens? It's hollow. Yeah, it's hollow. I mean, it's like disappointment, like a tsunami came upon me. It was horrible. That's what this faith is. It's a hollow faith. It's a hollow faith. It's a sham. There's this devotion, but there's no delight in God. There's no pleasure in God. It's like the husband that comes home dutifully day after day after day, and he has no love for his wife. He has no passion. He has no desire to know her to be close to her, to be intimate to her. But he's there every day. He's doing it. He's there. He's working. He's providing. But there's no love at all. Would you want that kind of marriage? I don't think any of us would. And this is why God condemns it in verse 5. Look at what he says. Is this the fast that I have chosen? A day for people to humble themselves? He talks about the bowing of the head and like a reed. A reed just bobs around whichever direction the wind's blowing. There's no intentionality to it. It's not well thought out. It's just I'm doing what I'm doing. God condemns this fast. He condemns the spiritual hypocrisy. Do you see that here? Do you think God is fooled by our spiritual hypocrisy? Do you think God doesn't see it? Does it threaten you the way God looks at this? Does it surprise you? God is kind to us. He brings Isaiah to the people to bring an indictment so that they might be convicted of their sin and repent. Do you realize that is the point of preaching? Preaching is to bring about God's word to you so that you are convicted of the sin that you may be struggling with and lead you to repentance and renewal and then true joy. Uh, preaching, this is why we come to church every week, or why we should, to lay our souls open and bare before God, that, that our sins would be revealed, and that we would be repentant, and then be renewed by God's Spirit, to be reminded of the grace that we have in the gospel, and then to walk in a right manner for his glory, and that will bring about our ultimate joy. Do you sense any spiritual hypocrisy in your life? Do you see gaps in your life? I, I want you to know, and as Ray prayed accurately, uh, spiritual disciplines have a dark underbelly. Uh, they can hijack spiritual growth. 
They can. Jesus warns us of this. In Matthew 6, he says, hey, when you pray, don't pray like those that want to be heard. When you, when you give, don't give like those that want to be seen. When you fast, don't fast as those that want to impress others. He warns us against this dark underbelly of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are supposed to lead us to love and enjoy God. And they can often become just another Boy Scout badge on our chest. Just another merit badge. Look at what I'm done. Look at what I'm doing. Some of us even do it for superstition. It's kind of like our spiritual rabbit's foot. If I do this, if I pray every day, then I'm going to be in good position with God. It has nothing to do with the character of God, the work of God in Christ, or the need for the Spirit. This is what I'm doing. It's my little pile of righteousness that's going to secure my place with God. And if I don't, I get scared. You know, a number of years back, a lot of years back, I read through the Bible in a year. And I began to do it every year. I began to read through the Bible each year, read through the Bible once. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, and this is years back, but it dawned on me, I'm doing it so that I can say I read through the Bible every year. And, and I'm plowing through chapters when I get behind, and I check off the boxes so that I can say it became a merit badge for me. So that when, it, that, when that dawned on me, I said I'm not going to read through the Bible next year. Now folks, don't hear me say, don't read the Bible. <laughs> I simply found it to be a merit badge for me. And I had to put a knife in it. And so I began to read the Bible, but I didn't read through the Bible in a year. I intentionally didn't do it. So that I couldn't say to you, I read through the Bible in a year. I read the Bible, but I didn't do it in the same way. This is the insidiousness of being deceived by our own spirituality. Let me ask you to do a couple things this afternoon, or even this week. I would ask you to consider the attitudes that you have with God. Uh, these are markers. They're, they're buoys for us to highlight where hypocrisy might be hiding. In other words, uh, do you practice these spiritual disciplines? Whatever they are, whether it's fasting on this Tuesday or prayer or Bible reading, do you practice them because you have to? Do you do it because you fear what God might do to you if you don't? Or do you do them out of love? Do you have a lot of disappointment to God? Do you have even anger towards God? When you do all the things that you think you're supposed to do, and then things don't go your way, do you return to God with a measure of contempt that he's not holding up his end of the bargain? That would indicate a spiritual hypocrisy. Do you often do the spiritual disciplines over here to maybe shore up those parts of your life that really you're not walking well in. The spiritual disciplines are always easier to do than the stuff of the Bible. For example, it's easier for me to fast than to forgive somebody that's really hurt me. It's always easier for me to give money than get my hands dirty in the life of another person trying to walk with them through whatever trial they're in. I can do the spiritual disciplines easier than I can to walk out many of the, the call Many of the calls that Christ gives me in this, in this Christian life. So, so check your attitudes. You know, is there that sense of quid pro quo that you have with God? What's the motivation of your fast this Tuesday? Will it be to hunger after God more? And then I would say consider your actions. 
You know, does your piety on Sunday work with your practice on Monday? Does your devotion that you have to God today, does it, does it equate to your deeds on Monday? In other words, you can come and worship and then go home and fail to love your bride. You can lie in the office. You can treat your workers with contempt. You can overlook inequity in the office. You can cheat vendors. You can lie to customers. You can ignore the spiritual needs of your children. You can harbor bitterness and anger. I've known couples that come in here angry. They worship God. They sing the songs. They listen to the word. And they go out with the same anger towards their bride that they had when they came in. Confess that. I would ask you to, on this fast, this Tuesday, that you would consider your ways, that you would use this as a time of confession to God. Confess your sin. Consider your relationships. Consider the way that you handle people. Consider your Mondays in light of the Sunday. And confess. You know, the nature of hypocrisy is it's marked by pretending, and it's marked by hiding. Honesty is marked by revealing. Transparency is marked by revealing. If you don't see the pockets of hypocrisy in your life, I would ask you to ask a good friend or a spouse and then grant them the permission to speak to you about it. Or as I used to do, ask your children. If they're old enough to understand, ask your children, where do they see the dichotomy in what you say you believe and what you do. We all have it. We all have gaps. Every one of us does. I do. But it, it's important to know where those gaps are at. And then we begin to ask God for those, for those pocketed sins that we cannot get out of our lives, for those things that have a real, that, that we really struggle with. On Tuesday, may that be the point of your, confess that before God. You know, we're reminded in prayer, Rick read from Psalm 51. The psalmist David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You don't delight in pleasure or in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So may we humble ourselves. So, so this is how we walk away from a failed fast. A failed fast is marked by attitudes and actions that are not commensurate with our faith. And so we confess these things. I would encourage you to confess those to whom you've been hypocritical and, of course, to God. And to confess those and then to enjoy the fruit of the gospel and the forgiveness that we have. Okay, so look now at verse 6 with me because now he moves from a failed fast to a fruit-filled fast. And this is really a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing that I can be thank we can be thankful to the Lord over his kindness, that he only brings condemnation leading to conviction of sin and repentance so that we can be renewed before God. And that's what he's leading us to here, kind of this renewal. He's going to give us these words on fasting. And I want you to note that they're not instructions that if you do it this way, you will get these blessings. There's no bartering with God here. There's no, as we're going to see in the end, this all comes out of the gospel, that, that we're responding to God. What God's doing here in 6 to 14 is he's showing us really means of grace. He's showing us pathways that will lead us to joy. He's showing us these trails that lead to mercy. 
He's showing us that when you walk in these things, there are natural results to those who do them. It's not a cause of fact, but there is, a, there is fruit born from this life. Now notice what he says in verse 6. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Now let me just remind you, everyone fasts every day. You go to bed. Humans, we just have that daily hibernation. You fast every day when you go to sleep at 11. You get up at 7, you break the fast, breakfast. Everybody fasts. There's a certain fast that he's speaking about here. It's a mind-engaged fast. He's saying, is not this the fast that I have chosen? God's going to speak to us, not just about abstaining from food. Anybody can do that. You all do that every day. But it's abstaining from food in concert with a life that he is about to explain. So spiritual disciplines are not disconnected from your entire life. God always speaks to the person in the Bible in big terms. Not just what's in your head or what you think about God. It's what you do in his name. And you see that here. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. To untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free. To break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. In other words, he's giving us clear markers for the life that is pleasing to God. That the fasting is done in concert with this. Think about that, what he says there in verse 6. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the court. I think he's speaking about social justice issues here. Systemic problems, structural problems. You know, when Martin Luther King gave his speech, I have a dream speech, he didn't quote from Isaiah 58. He used Isaiah 40. He drew out of Amos 5. But the language is the same. The systemic structural evils that we have. Now, not just racism, not just inequality among, among ethnicities, all kinds of oppressions, genderism, the unjust treatment towards women the inequality that women feel, or exploitation with children is the same, and sexual trafficking, or the abuse of children. There's all kinds of forms of oppression that we see in our own society. And he says that is what we're to be about. As we are able to bring about change, to bring about a clear biblical word to there's social injustice issues that we still have. They are to concern us. Our faith is not simply precise theology. It comes out in the way that we live. Not just social justice issues, but practical issues. Look what he says. He speaks about, is it not to share your food with the hungry? Do you realize that 24,000 people die every day from malnutrition? 24,000? Most of them, of course, are children for malnutrition and related issues to that. That's close to 9 million people this year. One out of six in this world don't have enough to eat or don't eat well enough. These are the genuine issues, the shelter, we have refugee issues. You know, these are things that we think through. We have to be engaged. As God gives us opportunity, they are to be on the front burner. 
But not just social issues and, and practical issues, but familial issues, issues of our family, as he says here. And do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. We don't know exactly, does that mean our own family or does it mean our own tribe? I don't know, it could mean both. But we do have a responsibility to care for our own families. You kind of see these as concentric circles. And that's what he's speaking about, that, that the Christian life is about all three of these. I, I want to warn you about, about religion, because religion, as I said, there's a, there's a there's dark underside to it. You know, religion is much more than precision in theology and this kind of privatization or this piety. It, it's more than that. It has to deal with the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the weak, the oppressed. Otherwise, our religion is worthless. I mean, to just be with your own tribe, to be with your own people that are just like you and gather together and never involve yourselves in outside your little circle of friends is a dangerous posture to have in the Christian life. Jesus said very clearly, uh, he says, that we are to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, strength, and soul, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and you know, love for the neighbor is really the means through which we measure how much we love God. We can easily be deceived as to how much we love God. I love God. The way you see it is the way you love your neighbor. And all of a sudden, that's a quick calibration. That's why he puts the two commands together. Love God, love your neighbor. James says the same thing. He says your faith is dead without works. He doesn't say you're not saved by your works, but the works are an indicator. It's a thermometer of the temperature of your love. James also says that religion that is pure and acceptable to God is that which cares for the orphan and the widow. It's outside of our own specific tribe. So, so be warned here. I think Isaiah warns us about the privatization of our faith, about just looking at faith as being a theological exercise or being limited to just those that share the same blood that I have. It, it goes beyond that. And, and I, I would ask you to consider that. I, I guess I would ask us all um, to really consider, you know, in those consensus, am I caring for my family? You cannot solve every problem that he lists in Isaiah 58. You cannot be fully engaged in every one of those things that he said. He lines them up. Just as God so gives you opportunity to care for family, to care for, for church, community, and then the societal structures at large, that as God gives you opportunity, we're to be investing in those in some measure. That we do those as citizens of the kingdom and citizens of this country. So ask God for wisdom on that in this fast Look at your life as it pertains to how God says, is this not the fast I've chosen? It's a point of perhaps forgiveness. Or asking for grace to get involved in these ways that you can, however that may be. I know that many of you are serving in many capacities, and I applaud you for it and ask you to continue in it. Uh, but it's a good reminder to just think through these things, to consider them. Is this kind of describing my life at all? And, and fast, and when you're fasting, ask God to move you in that way. 
the blessing follows in verse 8. Because in 6 and 7, he kind of explains, is this not the fast I've chosen? Look in verse 8, the first word is then. Boy, if there's a word with a lot of weight, it's that word right, then. In other words, as you're fasting and living in this way, and remember, fasting is going with food, but it's, it's born out of a life that is doing these things in 6 and 7. He says, then. I, this is what I love about God. God encourages us with promises. These promises are to be held on to. Look with me in verse 8. Because he says, this will happen for the man or the woman walking in these ways. This will happen. Your light will break forth like the dawn. I mean, what that is is the darkness of, of night gets crushed by the rays of the dawn. There are new beginnings, just like his mercy is new every morning. God will grant you light, wisdom, strength, discernment, words in dark places. He says in verse 8, our healing will quickly appear. Our own personal restoration, going from weakness to strength, from conflict to joy, he says our righteousness will go before us. The glory of the Lord will be our rear guard. He speaks about that, that security, that protection that God will afford to his people as they walk in his ways. Or in verse 9 he says, we will call out and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Here the very, the very promise of God to answer prayer and the very presence of God to walk with us in this life. He assures us. He's promising us these things. Or look in verse 11. The Lord will guide us always. The Lord will be as a shepherd to us, leading us. Many of you have great and significant decisions ahead now, even later, as, as we prayed about the elders' retreat. We need wisdom. God, we need you to guide us. We need you to lead us. This is the promise that we have from God to believe to walk in faith. Or look in verse 11 again. He will satisfy our needs. That word is our soul in a sun-scorched land. That even though the circumstances around us will be without, our souls will be nourished from within. God will satisfy us. He himself will feed us. He himself will enable us. He'll make us like a well-watered garden. A, 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 a ever-flowing streams. As we give out, he gives in. As we gives out, he, he gives in. He fills us. He satisfies us. He continues us. In verse 12, we will rebuild the ancient ruins. We will be called a repair of broken walls. Now this will be used of God to reconcile and to bring about healing and strength to the brokenness in the relationships around us. In verse 14, we will find our joy in the Lord and ride in triumph on the heights of the land. That you'll be satisfied in God and his grace. You will have a joy regardless of the circumstances that you're in. That to me is the ultimate strength. That the circumstances of my life have little impact on my joy. Because it's so rooted in God. These are the promises that I ask you to look through this afternoon. To consider these slowly. How they would just bloom in your own life. When we fast on Tuesday, I would ask you to consider the gospel. I, I want you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's why I say that. You know, this is Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is the last section of the book of Isaiah. It begins in 56. 56 all the way to 66 
the Isaiah the prophet is looking to the future. That this servant of the Lord is going to come and he's going to bring about a restoration. When you read those last chapters in Isaiah, it's all about the restoration of all that God wants to do. He's going to bring about a full redemption of the world. It's going to be glorious. It, it's some glorious reading. I think the most glorious reading in Isaiah. But it all follows 53. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah speaks about a servant of the Lord that will come and he will be like a lamb and he will lay down his life and he'll bear our sins and our guilt and our iniquities and he will bear the wrath. The kings will have their mouths shut because of this lamb, but he will come to do a work to reconcile us to God that sets 56 to 66 out. It's because of 53 that 58 is so glorious. He's calling us to fast in light of, not in hope for, but in light of what he's already done for us. So, so allow the gospel to give you joy. That this fast is a response to God. I mean, it's not securing anything from God. God's already saved us. The Christian that believes in Christ alone, God's already He's done all the work. It's finished. He said it himself right on the cross. Now we're walking it out in victory. And this is why we fast. Fasting is necessary for us, that we be humbled and strengthened by his promises. So when we fast, let it be a precursor to a celebration. That's why we break the fast with joy. It's a temporary fast without food. Just a reminder, just a time to stop and consider all that we have coming. Look at those promises in 8 through 14. They will, they will write a, a bad day. Let's take a minute now and just ask God for the grace that these truths might be just kind of pressed deeply upon the fertile soil of our soul. And then I'll pray for us in just a minute.